Well, good morning once again. And moms, we love you. Happy Mom's Day to everybody. And guys, take them out somewhere real nice today. Not on me, of course, but some, somewhere nice. Okay? Well, very good. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16? I'll warn you, there'll be a little fireworks today. Not that I want it that way, but that's just the way it's going to be. But um, let's read verses 13 to 20. That's the section we're in as we're working our way through Matthew's gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. Verse 13 says, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And so they said to him, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Now, as we pointed out last week, this is one of the most controversial passages in the Bible. And primarily, most of the controversy centers around the first part of verse 18, where the Lord declares... And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, we kind of left you at a little cliffhanger last week as we uh, kind of introduced just the idea of what is the Lord actually teaching here. Well, that depends on your religious background, okay? Uh, The Roman Catholic Church says that right here Jesus appointed Peter to be the first pope and built the Holy Roman Catholic Church on Peter. They claim that from Peter, an unbroken succession of bishops, the bishops of Rome, came down from Peter. They became the popes, as Peter was the first pope, leaders of the Christian church down through the centuries to the present day. Evangelicals, well, we feel differently about that. We contend that Jesus would never have built his church on a fallible man, especially someone like Peter, who not very long from this point was going to deny the Lord three times, and Jesus knew that. Of course, evangelicals claim that the rock that Jesus was going to build his church upon was himself. Others say, well, yes, but precisely what he was talking about here is that he was going to build his church on the declaration of Peter that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That would be the foundation upon which the church was built. Now, Why is this so important? And really, we're dealing with this because we're here. That's the beauty about going verse by verse through God's Word. You have to tackle all of it, okay? Nobody can come to church and say, well, you're just picking on this group or that group or me because of this or that. We're just going through the Word of God verse by verse. We happen to be in a section that deals with this subject. That's why we're dealing with it. We have no axe to grind. Uh, This is not a favorite hobby horse deal that I constantly keep beating people with, all right? We're just here, okay? Why is this so important? 
Because if the Roman Catholic Church is correct, then it and it alone is the only true Christian church. Because it alone acknowledges Peter as the Pope and the entire papacy as having been established by the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's true, well then the Protestant Reformation was a lie. And its leaders, men like Calvin and Luther and others, they were heretics. And those who follow their teachings are damned. They're on their way to hell. Now, I've actually heard Roman Catholic apologists in debate say this very thing. Where do they get it from? They get it from official Catholic Church doctrine. You say, really? Does the Catholic Church really teach that? Uh, let me give you a direct quote from the Roman Catholic Church's official doctrinal position on this, okay? They say, and I quote, If anyone says that the blessed Apostle Peter was not constituted by Christ our Lord, Prince of all the Apostles, and visible head of all the church militant, or that Peter directly and immediately received from our Lord Jesus Christ a primacy of honor only, and not one of true and proper jurisdiction, let him be damned. In other words, first of all, the church is saying, this is our official position. If anybody denies Peter was the first pope, and from Peter came a succession of popes down through the centuries. If anyone denies that, they are on their way to hell. That's what the church teaches. Okay, So that's what they believe Jesus Christ is literally saying here when he said, you know, I say to you that you are Peter. On this rock I will build my church. Once again, they claim that Jesus made Peter right here the first pope. The rock or the foundation that he, Jesus, was going to build his church upon. And so... Roman Catholics read verse 18 this way. You, Peter, are a rock. And upon this rock, speaking of Peter, I will build my church. Now, Protestants and evangelicals disagree with this position, obviously. They point out several things from the Greek that they, including most of us in this room, would uh, believe disproves this interpretation. First of all, in verse 18, Jesus uses two different Greek words for rock. He said, you are Peter, the Greek word is Petros, and upon this rock, Greek word Petra, I will build my church. The word Petros means a little stone, but the word Petra means a large rock, like a bedrock. In fact, it's the same Greek word that's used in Matthew 7.24, where Jesus said, everyone who hears my words and does them, I will liken to a wise man who dug deep and built his house on the rock. And the storms came, the winds blew, and the house stood, for it was founded on a rock. A very large bedrock is the idea. Also, in the Greek, the word Petra is feminine, while the word Petros is masculine. And so we Protestants and evangelicals contend that Jesus couldn't be talking about Peter, could be calling Peter the rock that he was going to build his church upon, because, first of all, there are two different Greek words, and secondly, one's feminine and one is masculine. Simple, right? End of discussion. Our side wins the debate. <laughs> Roman Catholics say, not so fast. They point out that most scholars believe that Jesus spoke in Aramaic, not in Greek. In Aramaic, there is no distinction between the words Peter and rock. In the Aramaic, both words are kepha. And they read this verse with that Aramaic understanding. They read it this way, you are kepha. And upon this kepha I will build my church, saying there is no distinction. Okay? 
I mean, the Kepha, same for Peter and Rock, they're the same. Jesus was going to build his church on Peter the Rock. Furthermore, Catholic apologists, and I told you last week, I did not want to misrepresent our Catholic friends. I didn't want to put words in their mouth. I didn't want to build these straw man arguments that we could easily knock down and show how smart we are and so on as evangelicals. I went to Catholic websites. I read Catholic apologists and what they say about this verse. I went on their websites and listened to their radio call-in shows when they dealt with this verse. I wanted to make sure I was really representing them honestly and fairly. A Catholic apologist claim that the difference in the Greek between Petros and Petra is only found in what is called Attic Greece. Excuse me, Attic Greek. Second time I've done that. Attic Greek. And not in the New Testament version of Greek, which is Koine Greek. One Catholic apologist put it this way, and I'm quoting him directly. The difference in meaning can only be found in Attic Greek, but not in New Testament Greek, which was Koine Greek. An entirely different dialect. In Koine Greek, both Petros and Petra simply mean rock. If Jesus had wanted to call Simon a small stone, the Greek word lithos would have been used, end quote. And finally, they point out that although the word Petra in Greek is feminine, the only reason Jesus didn't use the feminine form for Peter is because Peter is a man's name. Therefore, he had to use the masculine Petros. So at that point, Roman Catholics spiked the ball and do a victory dance because they've now blown the Protestant interpretation out of the water. What about all this? Well, let me give you my take on these, and then I'm going to show you why it really doesn't matter. Really? really? Yeah. Let me show you why it really doesn't matter. Uh, because this is too controversial. Set it aside. And we'll still prove to you that Peter was not the first pope. Okay? But first of all, even if Jesus did speak in Aramaic, and guys, not all scholars believe that. In fact, I've heard some interesting uh, studies. In fact, uh, uh, at least one book that I know was written recently that believes Jesus actually spoke in Hebrew. But as I told my guys a few days ago, it doesn't matter if he spoke in Swahili. Okay? And I'll tell you why. When the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to write this gospel, he inspired him and all the other writers of the New Testament to write it in Greek. Why? Number two things. First of all, Greek was the common tongue, the common language of the first century Greco-Roman world. Rome was in power. Rome spoke Latin. But the Greek culture had been so powerful under Alexander the Great that even at this point, Greek was still the main language that people spoke. So God wanted to get his word to as many people as possible where they could understand it, had his men write his word in Greek so as many people as possible could read it, number one. Number two, Greek is a very precise language. I forgot just, I think it's like four times the size uh, of, of words that, than English. And the reason is that I believe God wanted his New Testament written in Greek was because the more precise the language, the less people are going to chance of people misinterpreting it. There's always going to be people misinterpreting God's word somehow. But if you choose a language that is very precise, you're going to limit the misinterpretations of God's word. That's what God wanted. He wanted us to have a clear understanding of what he was saying. So because of that, because God went to great lengths to choose a language that was very precise, I don't buy the argument that there is no distinction between the words Petra and Petros. We know that Jesus talked about the word of God, how that every jot tittle would be fulfilled. I mean, 
Everything is there for a reason. Uh, the Lord Jesus used the fact that a verb was in the present tense as opposed to the past tense to teach the doctrine of resurrection. Paul made a whole case about a noun being plural or singular. He built a whole doctrinal case on that. So to me, I don't buy the argument that there's no distinction between the words Petra and Petros. I believe that Jesus used two different words to convey two separate ideas. Number one. Number two, the reason Jesus didn't use the Greek word lithos instead of Petros, if he really wanted to make a distinction between Peter as a little stone and the large rock he was going to build his church upon was because he was using a play on words. He was using a play on words. You even hear it in the Greek. Petros, Petra, okay? And here's why this is important. Petros means a little stone, that's true. But often in Greek it means a little stone that was chipped off a large rock. Very important. Let me paraphrase what I believe the Lord is actually saying. Starting with what, you know, he asked his guys, who do men say that I am? They gave some answers. He said, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Here's what Jesus said. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. You are a little stone chipped off a large rock. And upon this large rock, I will build my church. The large rock, of course, was Jesus himself. But what about the declaration, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God? Same thing. Okay, same thing. The, the idea is Jesus Christ is the foundation that he was going to build his church upon. And Jesus wanted to use this play on words because it communicated something very important. And that was that his disciples, all of them, all of us, not just Peter, although he's addressing Peter right now, all of us have come from him. All right, He birthed us in a sense through the gospel. The idea is that we are separate, but yet we are still from him. In other words, as Christians, we have all come from him. He is the rock. We are all like little chips off of him as his disciples. You know, we even have a similar saying in English concerning the relationship of a son to his father. We say he's a chip off the old block. What does that mean? He's a whole separate person, but man, he's just like his father. And that was why he used the play on words. These men represented him. They very soon were going to take up the ministry that he would leave off. He was going to go to the cross and ascend uh, about a year from this point. And when he would ascend back to his father, they would take over. They would be his representatives, chips off the old block to show this world what he was really like. All right, set that aside for a minute. Because it's so controversial and people argue, and none of us are Greek scholars in this room. If you are, forgive me for messing anything up in the Greek. I tried my best to study it to make sure I had it right. But let's set that aside for a minute. You don't really need that. Okay, tell your Catholic friends, let's just set aside Matthew 16, 18, because, you know what, none of us are qualified to really get into all the nuances of the Greek and so on. Let's see, though, if history, and then we'll look at the rest of the Gospels and the New Testament, let's see if all of these things teach us that Peter was the first pope, that Jesus made Peter the first pope, all right? How about the testimony of the early church fathers? What do they believe about Matthew 16, verse 18? Well, it's interesting. I came across it. I didn't realize this until I read this. Okay, In Roman Catholicism, one of the basic tenets of faith is what the church calls, the Catholic church calls, the Tridentine profession of faith. The Tridentine profession of faith. What is it? 
The Tridentine profession of faith requires all Roman Catholic clergy since the days of Pope Pius IV, who reigned from 1559 to 1565, to vow to interpret Holy Scripture only in accord with the unanimous consent of the early church fathers. So in other words, and the early church fathers cover a period of from the first century to the basically the, uh, the fifth century. But here's the thing. If the church fathers did not unanimously agree with a certain doctrine, the Catholic church uh, teachers and elders and priests were not to teach it. That was what this whole Tridentine professional faith was all about. Let me read you what Dave Hunt said in his book, A Woman Rides the Beast. He said this with regard to this idea. He said, and I quote, How did the so-called church fathers, who were the leaders up to the time of Pope Gregory the Great, who died in 604, interpret this passage? It so happens that in this regard, they are unanimously in agreement with the Protestant position. Not one of them interprets this passage as Catholics are taught to understand it today. To be in agreement with the unanimous teaching of the church fathers, a Catholic would have to reject the dogma that Peter was the first pope, that he was infallible, and that he passed authority on to his successors. Then Hunt quotes a devout Catholic historian named Von Dallinger, who reminds us of these facts, Hunt says. Now, this is a Catholic historian. In fact, if you read Hunt's book, A Woman Rises to the Beast, very definitive work on the Catholic Church, he uses Catholic historians to prove his point. Uh, Von Dallinger, he uses Peter de Rosa, Will Durant. These men were Catholic historians who were honest enough to give us a clear look at what the Roman Catholic Church history was really all about. Von Dallinger, a Catholic historian, said, and I quote, Of all the fathers who interpret this passage in Matthew 16, verse 18, not a single one applies it to the Roman bishops as Peter's successors. How many church fathers have busied themselves with these texts? Yet not one of them, whose commentaries we possess, not Origen, Chrysostom, Hilary, Augustine, has dropped the faintest hint that the primacy of Rome is the consequence of the commission and promise to Peter. Not one of them has explained the rock or foundation on which Christ would build his church as the office given to Peter to be transmitted to his successors. But they understood by it either Christ himself or Peter's confession of faith in Christ, often both together. So again, very simply, this Catholic historian is saying not one church fa- early church father interpreted what Jesus said here to mean Peter was going to be the foundation upon which he built his church. In other words, Peter would be was the first pope. Not one early church father. In fact, all the early church fathers understood the rock Jesus was going to build his church on to be himself or the confession of Peter, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So with that in mind, if a Roman Catholic is going to be faithful to the teachings of his own church, well, they can't interpret Matthew 16, verse 18, to mean Peter was the rock that Jesus would build his church upon, because it doesn't agree with what the early church fathers taught. Well, but what about the rest of the Gospels? Okay, we come to one point. Be very careful when you come to one scripture, and a group wants to make a whole theology on one scripture. What do the rest of the Gospels say? Okay, about Peter being the first pope. What do the epistles have to say about Peter possibly being the first pope? Well, let me give you a few of these, okay? Later in the gospel record, from this point in Matthew 16, verse 18, we see the disciples arguing amongst themselves who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Remember that? That comes after now, Matthew 16, verse 18. 
If Jesus had pronounced Peter the first pope, that they would never have argued about this. Because Jesus would have already settled it by pronouncing Peter the greatest. There's no reason to argue about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom if Jesus has already made Peter the Pope. They would have all known that, right? Also, during the first church council that convened in Acts 15, if you read Acts 15 carefully, Peter isn't presiding over it as he would have if he was really the Pope. It was James who was in charge. Peter was called to give testimony. In fact, in some ways, Peter was the one on trial. Because he had gone into the house of Gentiles, Cornelius and his family, and had offered them the gospel. And, and, and the early church was kind of horrified because they still kind of believed that Gentiles could be saved, but they had to become Jews first. And then they could believe in Christ for salvation. But no, Peter goes into Gentiles. And here they are now thinking they're Christians. And, and, and what about all this? Peter, you've got to get in here. We need to find out what's going on here. So they called Peter on the carpet. The Pope? You called the Pope on the carpet? Peter, what do you have to say for yourself? Well, you can read what happened in Acts 15. The Holy Spirit sent me. Okay. I mean, I, he sent me to go to Cornelius' house. You can read about all of that. But after Peter presents his testimony, Paul and Barnabas came, gave testimony of how God was saving the Gentiles. After all this testimony was given, we read how that James, not Peter, James made the final judgment concerning the church's position on Gentiles now being accepted as a part of the church. See, up, up until this time, Gentiles were always believed by the Jews that they could be saved. But they had to become Jews first, right? Even after the church began, you had a group of guys called Judaizers. These were Pharisees who uh, claimed to be Christians, but they went everywhere Paul went, came behind him, and basically told the Gentiles, look, you can't be Christians until you first become Jews. See? Got to get circumcised, keep the law of Moses, then you can believe in Christ and be saved. And of course, that was really something Paul, and you're going to find out in just a moment as we read from Genesis, uh, Galatians 2, Paul was really upset about that. and said, look, we're going to Jerusalem, and we're going to find out from the apostles just who's right on this. Because I say Gentiles can be saved without becoming Jews. You say no, let's find out. Let's go and see the guys, okay, the apostles. Even though Paul was an apostle, he was deferring to Peter and John and James and others. So they go. But, but James eventually makes this judgment, not Peter, that now Gentiles were being accepted into the church by God without being, becoming Jews first. We don't see Peter leading in, in the role of a pope. Uh, number three. In Paul's letter to the church in Rome, the book of Romans, at the end of chapter 16, he mentions about 23, 4, 25 people he says goodbye to or greetings to. Remember that? All you do is read the end of Romans 16. It's about 20-some guys. He lists, hey, say hi to so-and-so. Oh, yeah, so-and-so. Yeah, great. Tell him I said hi. The whole deal, right? He never mentions Peter, Pope Peter, not once. That would be a little odd if Peter wasn't the pope in Rome. In fact, Pastor John MacArthur wrote on this, he said, and I quote, Paul wrote Romans in the year 56 and sent a letter to the Romans made, when he sent the letter to the Romans, he made no reference to Peter and had a whole bunch of greetings in, the ch in chapter 16, but didn't greet Peter. Peter was supposed to be the Pope of Rome by then. When Paul was later in prison in Rome, 
where he wrote four letters in about A.D. 60 to 62, four epistles in that first century. He included everyone who came to him. Peter never came once. If he's the bishop of Rome, where is he? Peter was not holy, by the way. In case you wondered, Jesus said to him, get thee behind me, Satan. Peter wasn't even the head of the church in Jerusalem. James was, end quote. Let me quote to you what another author, commentator, said on the foundation and whether Peter was the foundation the church was built on. Uh, author William MacDonald, he said, and I quote, Ephesians 2.20 teaches that the church is built on Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. Its statement that we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets refers not to them, but to the, to the foundation laid in their teachings concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. That's true. They were the ones that God gave the revelation to that became our New Testament, uh, our New Testaments. So in that regard, the church was built on a foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, in the sense that the apostles and prophets were used by God. God gave them divine revelation, the word of God, which became the foundation. Of course, Jesus is the word, so really Jesus was the foundation. He goes on to say that uh, Christ is spoken of as a rock, In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, in this connection, he quotes another commentator, Morgan. He says, Morgan gives us a helpful reminder. He says, and I quote, Remember, Jesus is talking to Jews. If we trace the figurative use of of the word rock through the Hebrew scriptures, we find that it is never used symbolically of man, but always of God. So here in Caesarea Philippi, it's not Peter that the church is built upon, Jesus did not trifle with figures of speech. He took up their old Hebrew illustration, the rock, always a symbol of deity, and said, Upon God himself, the Christ, the Son of the living God, I will build my church. And then MacDonald adds this, Peter never spoke of himself as the foundation of the church in any of his epistles. Well, you remember in Galatians 2, verses 11 to 14, I won't have you read them right now, you can read them later. But I'll give you the gist of it, okay? We read how that Paul actually rebuked Peter to his face for hypocrisy. Paul rebuked the Pope? I don't think he was the Pope. Because if Jesus had elevated Peter to that kind of a position of honor, Paul would have respected him enough to at least take him on the side. But he rebuked him in front of everybody for his hypocrisy. You say, what happened? Well, when Peter came to the region there, he was eating with the Gentiles and everyone was happy and going to the church barbecue and eating ribs and all that stuff. But then when the big shots from Jerusalem came, he withdrew himself and only ate with the Jews. And Paul was really upset by this. He saw this out of hypocrisy. He said, Peter, he said, if you being a Jew want to live like Gentiles, not follow all these dietary laws and so on, why do you expect Gentiles to live as Jews? We couldn't even live as Jews with all those laws. It's hypocrisy, Peter. You know, along those lines, let me just throw this out to you. If any apostle acted like the head of the church and therefore a pope, it was Paul. Not that he was a pope. But if anyone acted like the head of the church, a pope, you might say, it was Paul. You can count how many times in Paul's epistles where he commands, and that's the Greek word, he commands the churches to obey and teach certain things. Paul was the one who seemed to have the weight of the church on his shoulders. He said in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 28, Besides the other things, 
what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. We don't see that kind of language in Peter's epistles. Not that he didn't care about the churches. But Paul comes through as the guy who seems to have the weight of the churches on his shoulders. And by the way, Paul and not Peter was celibate. Peter had a wife. Okay. Besides, we find no place in Paul's epistle that he ever calls Peter the Pope or even singles him out for special mention except when he had to rebuke him. In Galatians 2, I won't have you turn there because I'm going to read it to you out of the New Living Translation. But in Galatians 2, verses 6 to 10, remember when Paul went to Jerusalem to talk to the apostles about whether or not Gentiles could be saved without becoming Jews first. All right? In Galatians 2, Paul is recounting when he got there and talked to the apostles. But listen to the language. You don't hear him exalting Peter at all. Okay? He said in verse 6, And the leaders of the church had nothing to add to what I was preaching. By the way, their reputation as great leaders made no difference to me. God is no favorites. Instead, they saw that God had given to me the responsibility of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as he had given Peter the responsibility of preaching to the Jews. Now, if Peter was the pope of the whole church, obviously, you know, he would have been the guy for both Jew and Gentiles. But Paul says, no, God called me to preach to the Gentiles and Peter to the Jews. Verse 8, for the same God who worked through Peter as the apostle to the Jews, not the Pope, but the apostle to the Jews, also worked through me as the apostle to the Gentiles. In fact, James, Peter, and John, he doesn't single out Peter, he says James, Peter, and John were known as pillars of the church, recognized the gift God had given me, and they accepted Barnabas and me as co-workers. They encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued their work with the Jews. Their only suggestion was that we keep on helping the poor, which I have always been eager to do. Well, you say, well, how did Peter see himself? I mean, did he think of himself as the head of the church? Turn to 1 Peter 5. And listen to what Peter says about himself. He said in verse 1, The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion but willingly, not for dishonest gain but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away." Peter believed he was just one of many fellow elders. He exhorted others to shepherd the flock of God. He acknowledged Jesus Christ as the chief shepherd, a title that he never took for himself as the popes do today. Author James Montgomery Boyce writes, and I quote, How did Peter understand Jesus' words in Matthew 18, verse 16, verse 18? 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 8, provides a definitive answer to that question. Because there, as in his great sermon before the Jewish Sanhedrin, as recorded in Acts 4, verses 8 to 12, Peter does not suggest even for a moment that he is the rock on which the church is built. Rather, he insists that the foundation stone is actually Jesus Christ. 
Peter refers to Jesus as the living stone, capital S, on which those who believe are like living stones being built into a spiritual house or temple. Therefore, if others, like Peter himself, are to be called stones in any sense, it is only because they have been built on Jesus, who is the actual foundation, end quote. All right, well, finally, concerning the Roman Catholic Church's teaching that Peter began an unbroken succession of popes that continues to the current pope. These are all vicars of Christ, the church calls them, holy fathers, men that most Roman Catholics who don't really know Catholic history, most Roman Catholics believe these popes to have been men of the highest virtue and character. Well, let's see. Pastor John MacArthur says, and I quote, there were big chunks of time when there wasn't even a pope. 4th century, 7th century, 11th century, 13th century, 14th century, and 15th century, there was no pope at all for long periods of time. He says there is no unbroken succession. If you want to study the history of the papacy, it is really a sordid mess. And I encourage you to do that and read the Catholic historian so you don't realize that's some biased anti-Catholic Protestant. You can't believe the history of the papacy. It's absolutely incredible. MacArthur says it's a sordid mess, bloodbaths, mob violence, corruption, sexual perversion, buying and selling of papacy power. It's an unbelievable horror. The claim of some unbroken papacy is absurd. Even Cardinal Ratzinger, of course, before he became Pope Benedict, wrote this. He said for nearly half a century, the church was split into two or three obediences that excommunicated one another. What is he talking about? Well, for a good period of time, there was two popes and sometimes three popes, all claiming to be the official representative of Peter. So sometimes in Catholic Church history, you had two or even three popes. And what did they do? They went around excommunicating each other's followers so that the whole church was excommunicated, basically. That's what MacArthur says. He says, so that every Catholic lived under excommunication by one pope or another. And in the last analysis, no one can say with certainty which of the contenders had the right on his side to be Pope. So here are Popes excommunicating everyone, everybody else so that everybody's excommunicated. That's the kind of chaos and conflict even admitted by the Roman Catholic Church themselves, end quote. Dave Hunt again says, and I quote, There is no record that Peter was ever Bishop of Rome, and therefore no Bishop of Rome could possibly be his successor. Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyons, who served from 178 to 200 A.D., provided a list of the first 12 bishops of Rome. Linus was the first. Peter's name does not even appear. Eusebius of Caesarea, the father of church history, never mentions Peter as Bishop of Rome. He simply says that Peter came to Rome, quote, about the end of his days, end quote, and was crucified there. Paul, in writing his epistle to the Romans, greets many people by name, but not Peter. That would be a strange omission if Peter had been living in Rome, and especially if he were its bishop. Who the actual bishops of Rome were cannot be known with any certainty at this late date. Even the New Catholic Encyclopedia, published by the Catholic University of America, acknowledges this fact. He quotes from the New Catholic Encyclopedia, which says, and I quote, that it must be frankly admitted that bias or deficiencies in the sources make it impossible to determine in certain cases whether the claimants 
were popes or anti-popes, end quote. Hunt goes on to say the simple truth is that the Roman Catholic Church itself, with all of its archives, cannot verify an accurate and complete list of the popes. The alleged unbroken line of succession back to Peter is therefore a mere fiction. Anyone who takes the time to seriously attempt a verification of its accuracy will conclude that the church has fabricated an official list of popes in order to justify the papacy and its pretensions. Nor was the Bishop of Rome considered to be the Pope of the Universal Church until about a thousand years after Pentecost. End quote. Let me bring it to a close. As, uh, again, Pastor John MacArthur gives us a little snapshot of Roman Catholic history. I encourage you, if you're interested, to go ahead and get a fuller history of the papacy. But he says, and I quote, deprived of the support of the empire. Remember, now, the Roman Empire fell at one point, and so now, in the beginning, the Roman emperors were actually the first heads of the church. Starting with Constantine and others, history shows that, but when the Roman Empire fell, now the bishops of Rome took the leadership role. And MacArthur says, deprived of the support of the empire, the papacy became a possession of the great Roman families, a ticket to local dominance for which men were prepared to rape, murder, and steal. A third of the popes elected between 872 and 1012 died in suspicious circumstances. John VIII was bludgeoned to death by his entourage. Stephen VI was strangled. Leo V was murdered by his successor, Sergius III. John X was suffocated. Stephen VIII was horribly mutilated, a fate shared by the Greek anti-pope John XVI, who unfortunately for him didn't die from the removal of his eyes, nose, lips, tongue, and hands. Most of these men were maneuvered into power by a succession of powerful Roman families. John X, one of the few popes of this period to make a stand against aristocratic domination, was deposed and murdered in the castle of San Angelo, uh, San Angelo by one group, the very group that had appointed him in the first place. I mean, MacArthur says, that's how the history goes. He concludes with this, strong words. I think probably the papacy is the biggest hoax foisted upon the world in the name of Christianity. As J.C. Ryle said, and I quote, a gigantic system of church worship, sacrament worship, Mary worship, saint worship, image worship, relic worship, priest worship, and pope worship. A huge organized idolatry. MacArthur goes on to say that's what it is, and that's what you have to see it as. A man wearing a gold crown, triple decked with jewels worth millions. The cardinal's garb is worth tens of thousands of dollars. What a contrast to Acts 3, verse 6, where Peter says, Silver and gold have I none. The Pope is surrounded by this dazzling display of arrogance, overindulgence. It is a theater and nothing more to give the illusion of transcendence, the illusion of holiness, the illusion of spirituality. All of this pompous display of wealth and lavish indulgence and ridiculous buildings and robes and crowns and thrones covers a sinful system. It seduces, it's satanic, the true church has nothing to do with it, end quote. Look, once again, I am an ex-Roman Catholic. My wife is an ex-Roman Catholic. I was raised in the Catholic Church, went to Catholic grade school. She went to Catholic high school. We got married in the Catholic Church. We have many 
people in our family who are still Roman Catholics. We love Roman Catholics and want to see them reached for Christ. I love Roman Catholics. I hate the Roman Catholic Church. It is a false system, a false religious system that gives people the illusion that if they light candles and pray certain prayers and the rosary and, and do the sacraments and so on, they can work there. They can purchase installments of grace that will earn them salvation. That's the official Catholic Church position. You're saved by grace, but they define grace as works, which is absolutely contrary. Grace means a free gift. Works are works. Paul said in Romans 4, you can't have it both ways. Either we're saved by our work, which is then a re- salvation is a reward for how hard we work, or it is a gift of God's grace by just believing in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved, Paul said. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, lest any should boast. Titus 3, 5, he says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, has he saved us, but by his mercy. The mercy that offered us salvation freely as a gift to be received by faith. Again, the Roman Catholic Church is a false religious system that traces its roots back to ancient Babylon. And if you'll indulge me, I'd like to leave you with another cliffhanger. Okay? So I'd like to spend one more week looking at this in part two of this message, a message that I've entitled did Jesus really make Peter the first pope? And, you know, if you were offended today, you may not want to come back and be offended again next week. Uh, and, and you know what, guys, honestly, and I'm not just saying this to be, you know, kind of act all humble and whatever, but I actually prayed on the way over here this morning, God, I do not want to come across as condemning Catholics. I love Catholics. I, I am an ex-Catholic. I have many Catholics in our families that we love and want to reach for Christ. But we love Catholics by giving them the truth. We don't love them by letting them go on in a false system where they feel that they're saved because they're in good standing with the church. And you know what? Let me say this to you. This current pope seems like a decent and humble man. Unfortunately, I've heard Roman Catholics who are wayward say, you know, this pope is bringing me back to the church. And that's the problem. Um, I'd rather he was a rotten guy who drove people into the arms of Jesus and not back to an organization. But it is what it is. And we love Catholics by teaching them the truth, giving them the truth in humility, not arguing, not condemning, not coming across, you know, arrogant and so on. In humility, pointing out to them their own history. We had a couple of ladies a few months ago, older ladies, who... um, listened to our radio broadcast. And they came to church one day just to say hi and to meet me. And they said to me, we were Roman Catholics, but when we heard your teaching in the Roman Catholic Church, we have left the church and have become evangelical Christians, Bible-believing Christians. And I consider that an honor by God to be allowed to do that. Now, some people think would think you're divisive, you're coming against a good church, Because we all have Catholics that we know that are good people, we want to say the church they belong to is a good church. That's not necessarily true. Okay? You can have good people that are deceived. And I believe that's the case with Roman Catholics. And we just want to give them the truth because we love them enough to tell them the truth so that they might come to Christ in truth and be saved. So uh, we'll see you next week, hopefully. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for your word. 
It was your word, Lord, as I picked it up and began to read it for the first time in my life. Your word opened my eyes. As you said, Lord Jesus, the truth will set you free. And the truth, your truth did set me free, Lord. It set my wife free. All we needed to do was read your word to see all the errors we had been taught. And Lord, as we read your word and realized salvation was not a a work or a, a reward for our hard work, but it was a gift of your grace received by faith. Well, Lord, it just revolutionized our lives. And so we thank you for your word. And we pray for our Roman Catholic friends, Lord, and family members, that, Lord, you'd open their eyes, that they would see what you've allowed us to see. This is a church that is not representing you properly. You were born in poverty. How dare a church load upon its leader jewels, a crown of gold, vestments worth thousands of dollars and say they're the vicar of Christ on this earth. It's appalling. It's an abomination. And Father, we ask you to deliver Roman Catholics from this bondage and deception. For we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.